I honestly, at that point, I was like, I've got to the feeling when I heard that the bus had gone, they'd gone to the hotel. I'm like, I've got mates here. I'm just going to jump in the car and go straight back to my apartment and not even go see the team. Well, you heard him, folks. 2011 Milan San Remo champion. Our friend Matt Goss is on Bobby and Jens today. Stay tuned. All right, without further ado, here's the man we promised y'all, Matt Goss. Matt Goss. How do you want to pronounce it, Matt? <laughs> well, let's just go with Goss. That's all right. I'm prob- there's going to be a couple of different accents in this one, isn't there? But uh, we, we know Yeah, that, that's what I was trying to, to hint at. You know, uh, it's been brought to my attention that, that Yenzi has quite an accent. And um, ouch, you have quite an accent as well. So, Matt, where, where are you right now? I'm in Tasmania, uh, you know, a little island down there off the bottom of Australia. I've uh, been back here for about four or five years now and uh, up nice and early to have a chat with you guys. That is fantastic. And we are actually more than happy to have you on our podcast all the way from the island of Tasmania. Hey, hey Yenzi, can I jump in? I, As an American, I have a question. And I think many of the Americans, you know, we, we joke about this all the time. What is a Tasmanian devil? Because, you know, we grew up watching cartoons. Tasmanian devil was this guy that just like blew around and you always kind of wondered what it was. But do you have them and what are they? <laughs> we do have them, but they are a little bit different. Um, it would be pretty crazy to see a bunch of little devils spitting around on their on their toes in the streets. It would be pretty mad. Uh, we, we, Definitely be a tourist uh, hotspot for that, but uh, they're, they're probably not quite so friendly. You know, they're like a little cat type of thing, bit short, stunted type of animal, but they're, they're pretty aggressive. They're a bit of a scavenger and go and collect all the, the, the animals that some other animals killed. And um, yeah, they're not, they're not much fun. They're not as fun as a TV show. <clears throat> and they do have really strong jaws, right? They can crack bones and eat uh, the rest of the bones. Apparently, yeah. Apparently, they have like the one of the highest bite pressures per any animal that's out there. So, I haven't tested it out. I don't plan to test it out, but I believe you are true, Yenzi. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And and one one last question, and then we can get to the meat of uh, our interview. Um, we hear this a lot over in America that people come on and do an advertisement, and they talk about putting shrimps on the barbie. Have you ever put shrimp? On the Barbie. Short answer, Bobby, no. <laughs> See, everyone thinks that that's all you guys do over here in America. And I told them, I said, you know, Stuart O'Grady said the same thing. And now you back it up. Like, nope, never done that before. Look, I'm not the so, biggest seafood. Yeah, marketing over here in America is a little messed up. <laughs> I'm not the biggest seafood guy, but I don't think I've even <clears throat> even seen that. Not even at Christmas time. Maybe, maybe the one random family down the beach or something, but... Um, it's definitely not something that's <laughs> mainstream. Okay, now that we got that out of the way, that's great. That's great. So, yeah, Matt, again, thanks for coming on the pod. It's great catching up with you. You know, I, I got to kind of go back into uh, the memory banks a little bit because, you know, I do remember you coming on to the team, uh, Team CSC, in, in 2007, but really didn't really know that much about you. 
what who was it or what happened that caught your eye uh, that got, caught Bjarna's eye that signed you to the to the team all the way back in 2007 um uh, i don't know maybe look, there was a few different races there was um you know i raced amateur in italy for basically two years you know my first two years out of under 19s and under 23 and had a couple of little wins down there um and you know won a couple of races back in australia where there were some other bigger guys racing like you know studio grady and these fellas and you know one day i managed to get in front of a couple of those guys in a race and uh you know stewie kind of looked out for me a little bit from that point on and he was one of the instigators that you know brought me to csc i guess because you know i was looking at other teams that's for sure and um you know he spoke to me and spoke to Bjarna and you know we kind of put a meeting in place and then from there we you know made the step to go with csc and that was a good move i mean you did fit right in you know of course with stewie as the wingman um makes things a little easier right um and um you had some some really good good years with us. Uh, you moved straight to Monaco, right? To live in Monaco, then, right? Then, is that correct? Yeah, that's right, Yenzi. Um, you, like you said, it was it was a bit easier to step into a team when you've got somebody you know and you've worked with in the past, and that was the same reason for moving to Monaco. It was, you know, we had an Australian base there. There was a, there was a, you know not just one or two riders. We had masseurs. We had you know uh, a big organization that, as a young guy, it's easier to go and step into a place where you know all the contacts that you need as opposed to moving to somewhere and trying to find, you know, a masseur or a physio or an osteo in some place, small town in Italy that I've never been before. So that made the transition a lot easier for sure. But I mean, yes, I think you always want to move to there where there's like a nucleus of people that speak your own language, you know, have your own, you know, same sort of training stuff. But what were some of those challenges uh, moving to to Monaco, even with having the support? Um, you know, you're you're from Tasmania. You're now centered in in the south of France. What were some of those like neo pro challenges that you had to deal with? Oh, look, it's it's always tricky to settle in. You know, you might be around people that you know, but it, just the language barrier alone. You know, I hadn't spoke French. I would been in Italy and. I was 19 years old, 20 years old, so I didn't have any knowledge of that. So trying to go to the bakery was tough, <laughs> tough sometimes. Going to the supermarket, you know, but that's all little things that you overcome fairly quickly. But um, you know, just just that settling and being away from family for you know 10 months of the year is a big change. It's not like you know you could you're living an hour flight away. We're literally on the other side of the world, and you're traveling. 24 hours to get there so once you're there you're committed you know if you're having a bad day there's no going home so um gossi if you could write a letter to your younger self and you could give yourself back in the day three advices what would it be what would you tell your younger self just at the start of your career well that's a tricky one Nins, isn't it you know mm, yes i'd probably say don't come off the fence in the 2011 world championships <laughs> on the road <laughs> um yeah uh, i don't know there's i, I guess it's just, just the same thing just enjoy it. it is fun what we do and you know when, when you finish and you look back now you're like you've got some pretty amazing experiences to, to travel the world riding a bike hanging out with a bunch of good people so you know i, I guess one would be just to soak it up and then really enjoy the moment rather than you know you find yourself always looking for all right, what am I going to do next? What am I going to do? I've got to get home. I've got to do this rather than actually taking in what we're doing some of the time. And um, yeah, I'm 
that that definitely be one of them. But look, three. Oh, that's tricky, man. You really put me on the spot. <laughs> Train harder, <laughs> eat to, less. I'll come back to the other two. Alrighty, maybe all, all have, those, yeah. have more beers, have less beers, anything. Oh, you can always <laughs> have okay. less beers, less <laughs> yeah. beers. Unless you're winning, then you can have more beers. Once you've won the celebratory ones, we can, that that day's fine. Yeah, that's a pretty good rule. <laughs> I will stick to that. <laughs> You know, I, I was stationed right down the road in Nice, and uh, it, it's definitely a different world in, in Monaco. What were some of the, the extracurricular activities or friends outside of cycling that you you hung out with? Because there's so many athletes and cool people and, like you said, beautiful people in Monaco. Was there anybody that you kind of just hung out with that didn't ride a bike, that maybe rode a motorcycle or drove a car or, you know, did something else? Yeah, it's pretty cool like that. Like you say, it's really diverse. You've got people from every walk of life and, you know, a lot of sportsmen. And, you know, some of those, some of these guys that race motorbikes or Formula One drivers, they're bloody good on the bike too. They're strong. It took some unloading some days when they come out for a ride with you. But, you know, there, there was still guys like Troy Bayless, an Aussie motorbike rider. He was there when we first got there. You know, Jensen Button used to love riding a bike. So there was always somebody interesting, somebody different to talk to. And like I said, man, they could, they could pedal. Well, would that mean you saw a chance in a crossover to become a Formula One driver? If they can pedal, you must be surely able to drive a car, no? <laughs> Let's go with that, Yenzi. Let's see if somebody's going to throw up a car and we'll have a go. We'll see how we go. It can't be that difficult, can it? Yeah, right. Indeed. <laughs> no, I'd love to, you mate. Just, you just push the gas pedal and the brake pedal. That's it, right? Yeah, that's it. Same as us. You just pedal. It's easy. <laughs> jeez, jeez. Well, yeah, so, you know, we, we know what happened. You know, you were with us in 2007 till 2009. And then in 2010, you switched teams to the big powerhouse team at that time, uh, Team HTC Columbia. Uh, tell us a little bit about your experience there, um, going there. I know that I want to ask you a little bit more specifically about 2011, but um, was that were you just as comfortable there at at HTC as you were with us at, at CSC, or was there another kind of uh, adaptation that you had to go through there? Um, look, it, it was it's always difficult. Everyone knows what it's like when you go to a new team. You kind of find your feet a little bit, and you find how things work and where you're fitting in, but. Uh, it was a little bit, a little bit different, a little bit different, I guess, because I went there more as somebody that was expected to win some bike races as opposed to under, you know, CSC where I stepped in as a, as a neo pro. Um, and the tricky thing was stepping into that team. It was an awesome team, but the, as a sprinter, you were up against Cavendish, Greipel, you know, Renshaw, you know, then myself stepped in there, and then there was Edvold, Bolson, Hagen. So it was a pretty big team to try and crack into the top, being the top guy to get the support in that team. So. Um, yeah, it was different. It was different. It was a bit of a learning curve in some ways. You know, I, I started doing a bit more of the lead out stuff and then took my opportunities when they come around and just managed to make the most of those, which helped me, you know, get more opportunity as I got further into the use of that team. That team had an enormous strength and depth, just as you described, right? Um, were you ever like intimidated went, uh, I would rather go to a race where they don't send Greipel or Kev, or I want to be with them because I know we're going to win together. I think there was a lot of confidence in that team after the first, you know, six months or 12 months there that, you know, we were pretty confident most races we went to and whether it was me trying to win or me trying to help, I think that in the end we had a really good balance there that um, there was respect between the riders that, that uh, you know, whoever was feeling the better that day would get the support of the team. And, and like you said, you know, I think some of the one year in 2011 we had 
such a strong team at the tour you know, for the sprints we could ride on the front for the last 20 kilometers and barely have a team come up past us when you've got guys like bernard eisel and tony martin and burke rapsh and those guys that were driving the pace from 10 15 k's to go being a sprinter sitting behind them was the easy part talk us through a little bit about uh because myself and and I'll, I'll speak for jens as well i'm pretty confident that he's in the same scenario when you do have three sprinters in a race of that caliber and you do have that lead out train with Renshaw, Bernie Eisel, um, uh, Tony Martin, et cetera. How you just said whoever feels better, but like, what if you all feel good? How, how do you, how do you slot in there and explain, maybe, maybe talk our viewers and, and ourselves through that, that lead out that, I mean, cause you guys had that dialed, um, 69 races you won in, in 2010, um, I don't remember in 2011, we'll get to that in a second, but how do you, how do you decide? And then what is your role once you kind of slot into whatever position that you, you determine? Yeah, look, there wasn't too many races where they actually took all, you know, three or four, you know, there was normally a, a, a cab program and a gripe program. So, um, it just depended, you know, at, when it comes to the tour, everyone knew before the stages, what their role was, where they were supposed to be and. And that was pretty easy, but you know, it was, races where Kev and I were, it was a, we. If he didn't feel great, he'd let me know, and I'd take my opportunity. You know, he was a guy that's winning, you know, countless races every year, and I was a guy that made the most of the opportunities when I could. Um, so, you know, there was just a respecting there. If someone wasn't feeling great, you would swap the roles around a little bit. So, um, yeah, the, we didn't have the situation where there was, you know, Gripel, Kev, myself, Renshaw. Eisel, all these guys at one time because I don't think there would have been so much um, ease to find out who the best guy was or who the who the one was which one was feeling the better. Uh, but you guys also finished quite often two on a podium. I remember that you were often like first and second, first and third. So even the lead out man sometimes had enough leftover speed to still score a top uh, place for himself. Do you remember that as well, or is it just in my imagination? No, I actually remember that. I think I, you know, you've seen the picture with uh, Cav winning in Renshaw being, I think, second or third that day in the tour. You know, I've got pictures as well uh, of you know other races where myself and Renshaw have been first and second or second and third, and um, it was just this, the strength of the guys in front. You know, that, that could deliver us as the, the last three sprinters so close to the finish line that you know you might do your two hundred meters or so, but everyone behind was so on the limit from. Someone like Tony Martin or Bernie Eisel just putting the hammer down, and you know you'd swing off, and you was the, the peloton was so strung out, you would slot back in behind and still be able to run a place sometimes. And now, now getting to the meat of uh, 2011, which you know seems to be your your best year in your career. You started off with a stage win in the Tour Down Under. Uh, you got a stage win in in Paris Nice. And that all sets you up for probably the biggest race win of your career with Milan San Remo in 2011. Take us a little bit through that spring. Um, we're coming up to Milan San Remo. We, we need to pick your brain and get really into the details. But man, everything just seemed to go your way from Tour Down Under, Perry Nice. You were just, you know, ticking, ticking wins off the list. But tell us a little bit about your memories of, of Milan-San Remo, uh, the big win in 2011. 
Yeah, like you said, I, I obviously put in a lot that, that off-season and I really want to make the most of building on because I, I finished well the year before in a couple of races. I, I won GP Plouet and, and had some good results and I, that's where I really thought, oh, let's get really, you know, let's keep this momentum going. And it seemed to work. Like I said, you know, one in down under, second overall there, one in, uh, what is it, Oman, Paranese. Every race I went to up to Milan San Remo, I'd won a stage. Um, so the confidence was you know, super high, obviously, and and even Paranese, I think, won a stage, had the had the leaders jersey there. So, all it was kind of a bit different approach, though. Most people usually went to Torino, and then Milan San Remo, where I'd gone to Paranese, and everyone. It was one of those things that hadn't been done for a little while, but it seemed to work. I had the confidence. I picked up the wins along the way, and then, um, you know, we got to got to Milan on on the. The, the day of the race and everything kind of felt good. It's one of those days where, you know, you, your legs just feel awesome. You feel like you're floating. You're, um, you can't do much wrong, but I kind of had to make the best of a bad situation because we went over a climb about halfway through the race, come down descent and the race completely split in half. And I had no teammates. So every, every single teammate was behind and we were, I was the last guy to make the front group of about I think it was about 70 or 80 guys. I can't remember the actual number. So the team car, and be, the, the, the peloton was chasing because they're only like a minute and a half behind. So we had no team cars for like the next 150 kilometers. <laughs> so I was kind of just sitting up there by myself thinking, well, look, I don't have to work, but this is not the best situation to be in for the day that's so long to be sitting around by myself. But as it turned out, that, that group never come back from behind, and we, I finally got the team car about the Chipresa. Oh, no. <laughs> How did you do for drinks? For water bottles? Just get like, the feed zones off the side of the road and stuff. That was basically it. You know, we we were kind of on our own for for a lot of that race. So, um, fortunately, it was one of those days where I didn't miss a feedback, picked up everything, got what we needed, and, and uh, yeah, I got the team car back just before the so Chipresa. So, talking about Chipresa... Do you remember your position going into the Cipressa? Where where were you? Position 5, 15, 60? No, I wasn't quite so close to the front. It would have been, I'd been trying to stay up the front, but not right at the front because obviously no teammates. I need to save as much as I could. But I probably went in around the top 15, 20 positions there. Um, and it's a nice feeling when you, well, it's after 280, 70 kilometers. It's not that nice a feeling, but it's a nice feeling that, you know, you're able to ride up the Chipressa and feel like you haven't gone too far into into the red to stay right in the front of the race. And it was probably only at the t that point when I got to the top of uh, the Chipressa that I thought, yeah, I've got the legs to, to you know, go the distance today. And and without a teammate, right? So you're you're saying this to yourself without, did any of your teammates be able to, uh, able to make it back up? No, it was just me yeah. left in the front at the end that day. That is crazy. I mean, look, you know, I didn't have to didn't have to work, so I got to sit in the bunch a lot, which I wouldn't have worked anyway if I had I had teammates. But you know, maybe there'd be a bit more pressure put it back on the team if if I had support there. I mean, the M Milan San Remo is. I've heard it's the easiest world tour classic to finish, but it's the hardest to win. So you just kind of talked us through your entrance into Suppressa. Uh, descent to the Suppressa is also very important because then you come out onto the, the coastal road there and you got, what, uh, 12K, 13K before the Poggio. 
where where were you then coming off of the off of the Suppressa, and what was going through your mind heading into the the Poggio? Look, I think as far as I remember, there's a few guys up the road. I think Stewie was one of those guys, um, and you know, I come down off the Suppressa, pretty you know front of the group. I always try to keep at the front of the group on those descents there. They're pretty sketchy. Um, and then another little group actually went to, at the bottom of uh, the Poggio, and it was kind of starting to form a bigger group in front. And, you know, I, I think I was sitting next to Nibali, and I started to realise that the, the group off the front was becoming quite dangerous on the Poggio. So it was about uh, maybe 800 metres from the top of the Poggio as it kind of flattens on that last hairpin. It flattens you go around to the right before you head back up to the town. Um... I attacked there and Nibley and myself managed to get across to that front group at the very top of the Poggio, which I think they just caught O'Grady's breakaway as well. So I come onto the back of the, the very front group at the top of the Poggio, myself and, and Nibley, and we come down the first corner, turn left to the, the Poggio, and Stewie was, we just caught him from the break. So he's coming through that hairpin, and I just remember coming to that corner way too fast, way too fast. And absolutely just screaming at Stewie to stay straight and not turn into the corner. And he looked over his shoulder and he probably saved me the, he saved me the race here for sure because he could have dropped me right on my ass. <laughs> um, so instead of turning in, he stayed up straight and I've gone straight underneath him and slowly pulled up and then got back around. But, you know, it was all pretty pivotal to stay as far into the front of that group as we could for that descent because in the end, I think there was a crash in our group and we lost about four or five guys on the way down. So... It is all about positioning yourself there, right? And then how was like how far from the podium is it? Like another five kilometers? How how did you play your cards then in the very very last final? Uh, look, once I got to the over the top, it was just to try and get as close to the front as possible. And then you know, Fabian, following Fabian and those guys down the descent, you know, you know when he goes downhill, like we were fair motoring down that that descent and. Um, it was more so once we got to the bottom, you know, I knew that we could keep up on the downhill, you know, that, that's a pretty easy part of the game for, well, for me, except for that one time where I fell off with you, Jens. Uh, <laughs> and then, uh, once we got to the bottom, it, it was just about eliminating, not eliminating, but trying to pick which person I was going to target the most. And, you know, the, the strongest guy there to, to take advantage in the last three or four kilometers from the bottom of the descent was Fabian. So I had to kind of gamble a little bit that, you know, I would try and follow Fabian or if he went, I would chase. And then I would have to let somebody else chase if a different move went um, without using too much gas. Because, you know, I think there was about 10 or 12 of us left at the end, or at that point. Um, and I was pretty confident that if I come to the finish, I was the fastest guy. But I had to not chase every single person. So I guess it was ha having to be willing to lose a race to win it. You know, I picked one or two guys that I was going to ch chase and I think that... I was Pizzato once or twice, and it was Fabian once or twice. And then I just had to let the others kind of take care of themselves. Um, and as it worked out, that that's what kind of happened. And when we come to the, the final finish in there, it's not on the Via Roma that year, it was down in the, the car park or in the train station. And, um, you know, it was about 400 metres where nobody had attacked. We knew it was all together. And I thought, right, just don't get yourself boxed in here. Like, find a way out. Go back around everyone if you have to. And... Um, Yeah, it was only that point that I thought this is a really good chance here now. And so, you were able to to bridge to with Nibali on on the Poggio, and then you're coming into like you said it wasn't the Via Via Roma. You're coming into the final. Um, what is it like sprinting after 293 ish kilometers compared to I don't know 
160 or 200. Do, do you have the same sensation or is it different? Uh, maybe that day was a bit of a different sensation because once I got in front and I'd got a good gap, you know, I think my mind was already thinking like, you've got this and I didn't worry about the hurt so much. But look, it feels a lot more numb generally, you know, after 290, 300Ks, you know, you throw the neutral section in there, you're well over 300 for the day. Um, you jump on the pedal sometimes and it feels like your legs are made of mashed potato. You just feel like you're pushing up and down, but you're not actually making, it doesn't feel solid. You know, sometimes when it's a short race, you feel tight, you feel solid, your legs feel strong. But, you know, sometimes after those long races, you know, especially in some of the classics, you, you jump on the pedals and, you know, you're just hoping that they're going round as fast as they can. You know, it feels, feels soft, but, you know, you know that you're putting everything you can through them. If you want to get more out of your free time, sign up to Outside Plus. For less than a dollar a week, you can get six print and digital issues of Peloton Magazine, exclusive membership content from bellenews.com, access all the premium content from the whole Outside family, including Yoga Journal, Backpacker, Ski, Outside Magazine, and many others. And that's not all. There are discounts of the hottest gear and biggest events, access to Gaia, GPS, and trail forks, as well as virtual health and fitness courses. It's $350 of value in one $99 annual subscription. But if you head to valuenews.com forward slash outside plus and enter BJPOD25, all one word, lowercase, at checkout, you will receive our special 25% discount and make a good deal. Great. And now back to our chat with Matt. So now with your expertise on winning this race, um, if you have watched cycling the last weeks, who you think is your favorite or who, who would be a podium for you? Is it a chance for Caleb Ewan this year or is his climbing not good enough? Is it Wout van Aert or Tim Merlier, maybe? Mate, you see some of the guys. I, I didn't see the actual race, but I've seen the, the finish there in the first stage of Paranese where you've got three guys, you know, one team. But it's been a long time since you've seen domination like that. But the thing with Milan Sanremo is, like you said, Bobby, it's it's one of the easiest to finish for sure, but it's one of the hardest to win. And I think in a three-year period over when I won was in a small group, uh, the following year, Simon Gerrans won with four guys off the front, and then the following year, it's like a bunch sprint. So it's really one of the most difficult races to predict. Um, I'd love to see Caleb get up there and uh, get the win. He's been close the last few years. You know, Bling's been close. Um, but then, you know, Van Aert, these guys are so strong that, you know, they, they could go away on the Poggio and not be caught. So um, I'll go to the Aussie side and say, look, I'd love to see Caleb up, Caleb up there or, or see Bling get up there because they've all been so close. And, you know, been a lot of Aussies that sat in that second, third position over the years and, you know, I, you always want to see him be successful. So, look, let's go with one of those dudes. That's a good choice. I, yeah, I, I think uh, I think you you got some good favorites there. Um, so, thanks for giving us the inside information into that race because it it always amazed me how after I got finished with that race, I didn't really need a massage for my legs. I needed a massage for my neck muscles and my arm muscles because you were just so tense the entire time. Like I could barely turn my head from left to right, but, um, I was never in the, in the, in the final, like you were. Um, so, okay. 
Then that year, Mark Cavendish wins five stages in the tour. I mean, he's on fire, right? You guys are teammates and you go to the Worlds in, in Copenhagen and you finish one and two. What was it like sprinting against your trade team teammate? And maybe talk us a little bit through that sprint. <laughs> yeah, look, that's that's always one that's a bit of a pain to ask, isn't it? Like, sorry. <laughs> um, look, Cav won. He was the best sprinter of our generation. And, uh, you know, there's no shame to finish a second to that guy. But, um, you know, when you lose a world championship by less than 0.1 of a second or something in a sprint, it was a bit frustrating. But... Even that day, I think it was me, myself, Cav, and Griper. So all the three from the year before, I think Griper was with... No, he was still with, yeah, with HTC. The whole podium was was HTC that year. Or was Griper already moved? I can't remember. Anyway, it was the three guys that when we first went to HTC. Um, but yeah, that sprint, it was it was tricky. We came around the last corner. Uh, we controlled the whole race, you know, with the, the, the Great Britain team. Um, and been super strong we've done everything we needed to do to keep it to be a sprint and it was just basically you know see who could provide the best lead out um the, the gb boys did an awesome lead out awesome um train for cav i had an awesome train with my guys i remember heinrich took me up the fence <clears throat> um you know in the last couple of hundred meters it was kind of uphill and then flattened over the top to the to the finish line and you know, Heinrich took me up the fence and I just made one move that if you look back now, I probably should never have done. But as he moved off to finish the his lead out, I kind of followed him just a little bit and that opened the door for Cav to, to go up the inside and, you know, maybe he would have come around the other way if I hadn't have done that. But, uh, you know, you don't want to make it as easy as possible for somebody. And I probably made a little error that day by following Heinrich off the, off the fence and opening up the gap for Cav to come through. And I, just as we got to the finish, I was coming back over, coming faster, but... The finish line was where it was every time we went past the finish and not a meter further like I needed that lap. Well, but as you said, finishing second to Kev, who was the dominant sprinter of his generation, that's that's an awesome result. Um, and a quick check, uh, Greipel was already at Lotto then. He left uh, HTC, so he was already at, at Lotto. But yes, he was a former teammate. So yeah, all three of you were at HTC or just former teammates. Yeah, which is pretty crazy that, you know, and you look at the stuff that both of those guys have done since that point as well. Um, you know, it's a, it's a nice podium to be part of, that's for sure. Um, you know, that's what you kind of look back at. And even Milan Sanremo, you look back at the podium to share with Cancellara and Gilbert. It's, it's, you know, a couple of pretty highly decorated dudes there. So Not bad. Um, you know, it's nice. <laughs> okay, I got to ask you a question because I'm always curious of this. So Milan San, San, Milan San Remo is known as the, the Sprinter's Classic. And the, the prize jewel in the Tour de France is winning on the Champs-Élysées. If you could only pick one, would you rather have a Milan San Remo victory or a final victory on the Champs-Élysées in Paris? That's a tricky one as well, Bobby. Um, uh, look, I think... Uh, that's tough. I, I would probably still stick with Milan San Remo. I, I, personally, for me, I've always you know loved the race. It's the, the classics, that longer distance. Um, you know, I've I wouldn't. I would absolutely love to have a uh, Champs Elysees as well, mate. But um, I think I finished second and third there, so that's just super frustrating as well to, to have that picture where you're behind the front guy. That's not cool. Um, but yeah, I'd probably stick with San Remo. I I probably would. Um, 
Look, if you said to me the green jersey, the tour, and, you know, I might be more inclined to go that way, but um, no, San Remo, just because it's always been a race that I've loved. And, uh, you know, like I said, I've, I've watched a lot of Aussies in the past be close uh, with Stu, Alan Davis, these guys on the podium. And to be a first Aussie to win a monument of the sport is, uh, you know, is is something pretty cool. You know, I got an easy question. Living in Monaco, finishing Milan San Remo, did you ever ride home on your bike? Because it is just around the corner, isn't it? Did you ever ride home on your bike? <laughs> it's 300 kilometer race. Oh my gosh. To be honest, <clears throat> did you know what, Yenzi? There was one year, 2010, where it was the year before it won. We, we actually, uh, there was a big split in the race and it, the HTC used like half of our team and I was one of the guys at the point we were working for Cav um, to, to bring back this breakaway. We brought this breakaway back uh, but we were done. The game over for us. So we were riding. We thought we'll ride to the first feed zone. Um, we'll get in the car there. You know, that's about 150k, 100k or something. And the feed, the car's already gone. So we're like, ah, oh, that's pretty average. But look, we'll take a shortcut. We won't do these hills. We'll go to the second feed zone, which is about, you know, 90k from the finish. And we'll jump in the cars there. We got there that there was no cars there. And we're like, well, this doesn't look real good now. So we've basically got 200 kilometers we've had to ride by ourselves. At this point, the race was so far gone, we were in the traffic. We were like stopping at red lights. We were like looking around for people for food. <laughs> and um, then we got to the finish line after nearly eight hours on the bike that day. Because, you know, your neutral section, being drive, we're just cruising along. And then <laughs> we got to the finish line and I'm wandering around. And I found someone from Quickstep and they're like, do you know where our bus is? And the Quickstep dude's like, yeah, they left about 10 minutes ago. So I'm like... We're like, what do you mean? They're like, yeah, they went to the hotel. And I was like, I know where the hotel is because we ride along those roads every day. So it's like another 10 k's past the finish line. So here we are, we've done 320 k's with the neutral zone. The team bus is gone. We've had no food, nothing. It's been raining for like the last hour. And we have to get back on the bike and we had to ride another 10 k's to the, to the team hotel. And I just remember the mechanics look on their face when they see me ride in after like eight and a half hours on the bike. They didn't say anything at all. We basically just jumped off the bike and let it roll into the side of the truck. And I just walked straight into the into the hotel and just sat in the room and didn't speak to anyone until they finally come around about a half hour later and started saying, look, we're really sorry. We didn't have somebody wait. But there was a pretty sheepish um, Ralph Aldad that come in the, the room that afternoon and kind of said, sorry. <laughs> I, but that was a long day. I thought that I was a joke question. I didn't know that, that that would even be possible. I mean, how do you forget... <laughs> like some of your riders uh, after a race like that but yeah, man those... it must have been close to dark by then because like when you finish in the front group yeah. it's it's almost dusk you guys must have rolled in and needed headlamps or something yeah it was myself and julian dean and a couple of other guys at the time as well but um i honestly at that point i was like I've got to the when I heard that the bus had gone, they'd gone to the hotel. I'm like, I've got mates here. I'm just going to jump in the car and go straight back to my apartment and not even go see the team. But then I was like, you know, my luck, there'll be doping control that I haven't found out about or something, and I'll go back to Monaco and be in trouble. So I'll do the right thing, ride to the hotel. But I was so close just to just, yeah, it was only about another 15Ks. I thought I, I could just keep going. I could just keep going home from here. So it was a joke question, but nearly did happen. <laughs> um. Gossi, I um looking at your career data. You retired at the age of 30. Is that correct? That is relatively early for a pro in these modern day and ages. What made you retire? And uh, looking back at it now, would you retire again at that uh, time? Or would you go, nah, I think I could do another two, another four years maybe? 
no, look, I, I think I had kind of lost a bit of the passion there for, for, for racing. I had a couple of, well, not the best year or two and, and you know, small children or small child at the time. And look, I, I just wasn't, I wasn't fully into it as much as I needed to be. And it, you do, as you guys well know, it's too hard a sport. You can't just half do it. You have to do it properly. You have to be 100% committed. There's no point just riding along to collect a paycheck and suffer through, you know, like days like I just explained, you know, <laughs> you don't want to do that for, for just for just collecting a paycheck. Um, and look, no, I'd, I'd still make the same decision. I think I've you know, moved back here. We've, you know, gone to different walks of life back here now. But, um, you know, it was kind of either drag it out and get to the point where, you know, it'd be late 30s or something and then come back and not have anything to it'd be at an age where it's difficult to start something new where moving back at this 30 odd i thought look i've got the time to, to start a new career start different things and, and try and be successful in something different so don't leave us hanging here uh what, what are you up to these days what do you what do you got on the the docket instead of going out and doing sprints up the poggio yeah uh we got a couple of hotels hotels and bars and restaurants so we got two two here in in uh in tassie um, one's a sports bar, so we've got a bunch of the memorabilia and stuff up in there with, uh, you know, 25 or 23 rooms accommodation um, and restaurant, beer garden, all that type of stuff. And then we have another one in the CBD that's um, another hotel, bar, restaurant. So, yeah, we've built, we bought one, the first one three years ago, three and a half years ago, and we, we finished the last one about uh, 14, 15 months ago. And we opened them, which is you know, with COVID, it's probably not the best time. But hey, we 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 we're battling on through that. But no, it's been alright. It's been good. It's been fun, and it's been a new learning. So, uh, who is we? Uh, a partner of yours? Uh, somebody we know, or just you and your your partner, your wife, or, or who who is the team? No, just my just my wife and I. We have another business partner with the, the new bar we just opened, a new bar and restaurant. But uh, the main team is just yeah, my and, wife and um, I. Sarah. Are you your best customer in a sports bar? I had to ask. Sorry, man. I just had to ask. <laughs> Yeah, Am you I are the best your customer. Own... Yeah, of course, I'm the you are your best customer. In a yeah, part. for sure. Yeah, customer awesome. number one. <laughs> That's a great story, man. I love that. Yeah, man, man, Matt, yeah, thanks, this, man. this has been fantastic, man. Um, I, I have to feel for you, sprinters. You know, like you explained, you lose by a centimeter, and it it's considered, in your mind at least, uh, not successful or a failure. You know, as GC, you always had time to right a wrong, you know, wait for the time trial and then let the cards fall where they may. But you picked a very, very difficult profession, uh, one that I admire, one that I'm totally stoked to watch uh, the outcome of, you know, with with Milan San Remo. And what do you have in your sports bar memorabilia wise from your victory in 2011 Milan San Remo? Do you have anything? Not really, no. I don't put I don't like putting stuff my own stuff in there too much. You know, everyone's always like, "Why don't you put a bike in here? Why don't you put?" You know, I've, I've got a jersey in there and a helmet and a few bits and pieces, but I don't want to make it look like a shrine. You know, I want it to look like just an all-round sports bar. So I don't have anything down there from Milan San Remo. I've been thinking about taking one of the bikes and popping it up on the wall. Um, you know, I've seen the way Stewie's done that with his cafe in Adelaide, and that looks pretty neat. So you know, maybe it's time that I, I take a bike down there and. You know, pop it up on the wall. Sounds good. Right next to a cricket bat and um, whatever, something they use in Aussie football. football. <laughs> yeah, the football. 
Yeah. <laughs> now nah, look, we've got a very bit of stuff in there, but it, look, it, it's it's one of those things. You can build some pretty cool memorabilia across all sports. So, you know, we just pick and choose bits and pieces here and there. Fantastic. Well, um, if if I ever make it down to Tasmania, which I've always wanted to do, I mean. You got yourself there. Richie Port is going to be moving back there pretty soon. He said, uh, "Is Cam Camworth is from Tasmania as well, right?" Yeah. So there's Camworth. There's Richie who's moving back here. I think it's his final year, so he would be back after that. Uh, myself and who else? You had the, the um, Will Clark. Will Clark, who raced for Trek Segafredo there for a while. I think he retired last year. Um, you know, for a little little island with a population of 500,000 people it has been punching above its weight for you know the, the last 10 years 12 years but uh, hopefully they can keep turning some guys out that can make it to the world tour well yeah i think you paved uh, the road for them a little bit you showed them how how it could be done how it should be done so fantastic gossy it was so good to catch up i'm glad to see you well two happy healthy children that is awesome And thanks a million for being our guest tonight at our podcast. Gossi, it was great to catch up. Absolutely, guys. It's good to catch up as well. It's been a long time, you know. So good to have a chat. We'll chat yes, again soon indeed. sometime. Awesome. Save us a seat at your bar, Matt. Thanks again. <laughs> Always, guys. Cheers. Well, That's all the time we have for this week. And a huge thanks to Matt Goss for being our guest. Thanks a million for listening. And please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. The show was a Velo News production in association with Shock Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne. And this episode was edited by Tim Moza. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens and share your cycling stories with us. <laughs>